we uh, thank our worship team just for Why don't you have a seat? Have a seat. It's so good that you are here. Welcome to The Vine. This is your first time. We're glad you're with us. My name's Andrew, one of the pastors here. And uh, it is great to be in God's presence. And like promised, so beautifully reminded us, he is in this house, he is in this place, but he's not just in this place. And and we're going to spend the next four weeks opening up for us some of the ways in which God is in a place in us that we desperately need but so often never talk about. And I want to sit with something with you over the next four weeks. It's a little bit like that prayer we just prayed. You know, that prayer of God, whatever you want to in my life, is a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's a prayer that so many people prayed in Scripture. It's that prayer that opens us up for a profound work and a move by the body of Christ in us. And I want to start it by saying some words over you that I think are really important for you to hear this morning, and it's this. It is okay for you not to be okay. I'm going to say that again. It is okay to not be okay. I heard those words spoken over me by my counselor whilst I was sitting in his office slumped on his therapist's couch overwhelmed and struggling with the reality that I had chronic anxiety in my life. Three months prior to that, I was sitting in a meeting in the investment bank that I was working in at the time. And I was sitting in a meeting that I'd sat in many, many times before. And as I'm sitting in that meeting, I suddenly am overwhelmed with a sense of panic. Suddenly, out of the blue, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of anxiety that rises up inside of me. And and I, I, I didn't expect it. I'd never experienced it before. I didn't know exactly what was happening. My heart rate increased. My body temperature soared. I wanted to get out of that room as quickly as possible. I had to sit through that meeting. I don't know how I got through that meeting. I got outside straight away afterwards. I paced around the office. I was trying to find some way to find the ground under my feet again. And my thought was, well, I don't really know what's happening here, but I guess this is just a moment I need to get through. I wonder how many of us in this room have faced an overwhelming and emotional attack on us and have thought, this is just a moment I need to get through. But it wasn't a moment for me. I woke up the next day with exactly the same feeling. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And the feeling was this arising sense of fear in me for something is going to happen in my future, which is going to be a calamity. And I couldn't quite put my mind on it. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But I woke up every morning feeling like something terrible is about to happen. And this was incredibly painful. And what it meant was that I was fight, fighting the whole day to try to get my body and my emotions in mind. And because I was so tense, I would get home at night and collapse into bed, exhausted physically from the emotional battle that was happening inside of me. And this was day in and day out. And I told no one about it. Because you don't, do you? You don't want everybody else to think you're weak, that you're not strong enough. This is particularly how you think when you work in an investment bank. And I was there and I was like, I don't want any of my colleagues to know that, that I'm weak here. I don't want any of my colleagues to know that I'm out of control. No, I, we're here as a, as a bank. We've got to show ourselves to be sturdy and faithful and committed and professional and true. And all these things were what I was projecting outwardly, but inwardly I was being torn up inside. 
And I was fearful of letting my colleagues know how I felt for how they would judge me and think that I was weak. I was also fearful from telling people because of pride. Pride inside of myself that said, this is what those with mental health problems suffer. This is not people like me who suffer these things, people who are successful, people who are professional, people who work in great companies. No, we don't suffer this stuff. That's for the other people. And that pride kept my mouth shut when I desperately needed someone to help me. About a month into it, I, I turned to my beautiful wife, Christine, and I finally had the courage to tell her what was happening. And my wife is now a counselor, but in those days she wasn't. And she said straight away to me, you need to get help. You need to seek professional help. And my response was, no, that's what people with mental health issues do. They go to counselors. And if I go to a counselor, that's admitting something that I'm not prepared to admit. If I go to a counselor, that's what you do when you're out of control. That's what you do when you have no other solutions. That's what you do when you're at the end of your rope. And so for the next month, I tried to manage my anxiety through a whole bunch of healthy and mostly really unhealthy ways. At the end of that month, I'm still struggling. I'm still overwhelmed. I'm still barely making it through the day that I finally asked a friend for a referral to a counselor and I find myself in his office, slumped on his couch. And the first thing he says to me after I've explained to him how I've been suffering for two months is, it's okay, you know, to not be okay. That started me on a two-year journey trying to deal with the anxiety in my life through therapy, hard work, a lot of prayer, many times turning to Jesus, incredible support of my wife and the church here, seasons of medication to keep my chemical balance in my body and my mind right, fighting a good fight. And I stand before you today and I can say that anxiety is still a co-passenger on the journey of my life. It's still something that I'm struggling with right now. In fact, I felt anxious before this service. It's still something that is a reality to me. I may not be crippled by it like I was in that first time and in those two years, but anxiety is still a part of my daily journey. It's still something that I have to bring constantly to the feet of Jesus. And I wonder whether you in this room, you might be resonating with something like this. Maybe you haven't had a similar journey to me, but maybe you've experienced times in your life of emotional exhaustion, times in your life where things are just overwhelming you. Maybe over the last two to three years, as we've all gone through COVID, when we felt more and more out of control, maybe you felt like you were grasping at straws and you felt like you were wondering why you were suddenly feeling fear and anxiety or depression or sadness in ways that you'd never felt before. And the reality is, as the world has emerged from COVID, we're all struggling with something that people are generally not speaking about, and that's mental health. I mean, around the world right now, we're seeing a mental health crisis, and I would say here, without overstating it, that Hong Kong is struggling with a mental health crisis right now, and people are generally not really talking about it. 
In fact, there's a number of NGOs here that do work in this area that are desperately trying to get the conversation going around the realities of mental health and how we can get help in that space. And over the last year, they produced a lot of research and reports. And I want to share you a few things today to help you understand, I think, the context that we're in in Hong Kong at this time. One of these NGOs uh, uh, created a, a research project. And in that research project, they basically said about 61% of Hong Kong adults are currently suffering from a low sense of mental well-being. 61% of Hong Kong people. They also said in this that one in seven Hong Kong adults will at some point in their lives develop a diagnosed and understood mental health disorder. One in seven. Another NGO did a, uh, did a, a research over 1,000 people taken at random across a broad spectrum of the socioeconomic uh, demographic here in Hong Kong. And here's what they found. They found that there was about, I think it was around about 56% of the people that they surveyed who were, uh, actually came out low on the World Health Organization uh, mental wellness spectrum. So the World Health Organization has a spectrum for understanding how mental health is. And out of this survey of 1,000 random people in Hong Kong, 56% of them would rank low on that spectrum. 48% of them admitted to feeling either mild to severe symptoms of depression. But here was the overwhelmingly sobering statistic. Out of all of these people that were interviewed, 74% of them said they would not ever seek professional help. You need to think about this, guys, because this is how we define a mental health crisis. We have a rising mental health reality and issue in our city, and we have a society that over 74% of us will refuse to seek professional help. That should concern us as a society. That should concern us in the church. But often it doesn't, because when we hear statistics like that, we think, oh yeah, that's what all the people without faith suffer with. But us with faith, we're awesome, we're good, God's with us, it's all cool, right? And the reality is, our statistics will be as bad, if not worse, than those. See, here's the reality. Mental health is one of the least talked about topics in the global church today. Not only that, but those that struggle with mental health in church communities are one of the most marginalized and poorly treated communities within churches. See, we're not talking about it, therefore we're not responding to it. And if we're not responding to it, then we're not being an option in society to how actually mental health could be understood, could be recognized, could be met, and potentially over time, people could be free of some of these things that they struggle with. And yet as a church, we've generally taken the roots of saying spiritual issues are far more important than mental and emotional ones. And I want to say this, that is not good enough. Come on, church. That is not good enough. It's not good enough because contrary to the apathy seen in the church, the Bible is filled with stories of people struggling with mental health issues. In fact, you look through the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll see people struggling, suffering under physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual 
issues in their lives. And in fact, some of the most important figures in Scripture are men and women who struggle with fear, struggle with anxiety, struggle with depression, people who struggle with having a positive attitude towards the future. And if you're sitting in this room here right now and any of those things are something that you're aware of, if any of those things are a part of your general experience of life, then you're in good hands. Because some of the greatest leaders of faith have been some of the people that have struggled the most. You guys okay? So in the next four weeks, I want to take you on a bit of a journey. I want to open up some of this reality to us of mental health and what that means for us. And I want us, obviously, to do this through a lens of Scripture and through a lens of the Spirit of God. And I want to start by sharing four things that I think the church is doing wrong in this area, that I think we need to address. The first is this. When it comes to mental health, how so often it is thought about, we are tempted to think about it primarily as a mental thing impacting our brain that we need to find some diagnosis for so that we can solve it and get well again. When we think of mental health, we're tempted to largely think about it from an issue of this person has this diagnosis, therefore they need you to do this to get well. Now, don't hear me wrong. Diagnosing mental health conditions is an important part of the process. But when that is the primary lens through which it's viewed, people end up being labeled by their diagnosis. We come to actually expect or speak of people as their identity is this. This person is depressed. And we kind of make something like that the biggest part of who they are. The Bible does not speak about mental health in these kind of categories. When the Bible approaches the topic of mental health, it actually doesn't approach it from the topic of diagnosis. It approaches it from the topic of persons and a theology of suffering. In other words, what it says is that our mental anguish and our, our emotional struggles are a part of a bigger and broader thing of our suffering in general. And God cares about our suffering. The Bible looks at us as persons. And because he looks at us as persons, he looks at us holistically. And when he does that, I am not a diagnosis to God. Can I have an amen? I'm not a diagnosis to God. I'm a person whom he loves, who he died for, so that I would know the fullness of his power and his resurrection spirit in me. And when he sees me, he sees the totality of me and my mental health journey, my challenges in that area are a part of the wholeness of who I am. And God has compassion for me and he sees me in my suffering and he meets me in it. When we put mental health in this broader picture of suffering, we learn two things. God cares about it, and God wants us to talk about it and deal with it amongst ourselves. He wants us to be communal in it. All suffering that we experience, God is in it and present with it. He has compassion for it. He cares about it, and he wants the community of the body of Christ to be its each other's best support. So rather than being this kind of black and white mental diagnostic thing, within Scripture it becomes so much more a part of the way we've been created to be as human beings made in the image of God and a God who cares and loves and creates us and meets us personally in whatever journey we're in. Here's the second thing. The Bible is not a diagnostic manual. 
It is not designed for us to go into it with any mental health issue and try to find one cure-all prayer that if we prayed this thing, everything else is going to be fine. If we can just find that one prayer in the Bible that sets me fine again, then I need to find that prayer and I need to pray it. The Bible doesn't approach this issue that way. And I think many times in Scripture and many times in the church, we actually encourage people to do that. And what happens is they go into the Bible looking for some diagnostic help, but actually the Bible doesn't provide that, and therefore they become even more distant with God in the midst of the suffering that they've already got. Are you with me? Here's the third thing. This is perhaps the most important. We need to stop saying and thinking that all mental health is the result of somebody's sin. Is God's punishment for the things that they have done in their past or that they're currently doing right now. See, so often in the church, we have this idea, this thought in us, that mental health, if somebody is suffering from mental health, it's because there must be some sin going on in their life or some sin that they haven't repented of. And if they only just repented, then everything would be fine again. See, the reason why we do this is because Christians in particular, but human beings in a broader sense, want to find simplistic answers to complex problems. And mental health is a complex issue. It's so complex, but we want to find a simple answer to it so if we can funnel it all down to sin, then we can place sin in a box and we know how to deal with sin. It's just repent and then everything will be fine. Here's the reality that we have to grapple with. That mental health is an incredibly complex issue. And the majority of mental health challenge that comes, comes not because of sin, but because of trauma. Listen to this, church. It happens because of trauma. And on the whole, trauma is something that happens to you. This does not mean, of course, that our sin cannot create trauma for us. Your sin and your poor choices can create trauma that will bring you into a mental health challenge. Absolutely. But the majority of mental health challenge that we suffer with is because of a trauma that has happened because something is actually out of our control. And because it's out of our control, our thinking and our feelings are overwhelmed because we can't control this thing. Human beings love to be in control. And when we're out of control, that brings us into a place where mentally and emotionally we're in anguish and we're suffering, it's trauma rather than specifically sin. You see, when the Bible talks about suffering, it does so by focusing not so much on sin, but on a pathway of God in our suffering who meets us in it and works us through it into a place of hope and health again. So the Bible's focus, when it talks about suffering, is actually not to speak about sin. Yes, there are some places in Scripture where that happens. But if you look at the totality of the Bible's discussion on suffering, the focus is not sin. The focus is actually on a pathway of God meeting us in our suffering, walking us through it, and bringing us to hope. In other words, the focus on this issue is always towards hope. And if that's the case, then I think the church should focus on the things that the Bible focuses on in this area. Here's the fourth and final thing. The depth of your faith will not determine your success or failure in this area. Oh, come on, church. The depth of your faith is not going to impact the success or failure in this area. We so often think this in the church. We think that 
strong people of faith will not suffer mental health issues. And therefore, what we're implying is that those that struggle with mental health issues are actually the weak ones of faith. I I need you to hear this because it's really, really important. A mental health challenge is not a weakness of faith. It is a situation you are experiencing within which your faith can help you to navigate. Come on, church. Somebody please be here. Are you here? Are you with me? It's not a weakness of faith, but your faith can help, of course, as you journey in that process of struggling with mental health and wanting to move to that place of hope as you understand God's with you. Faith can help you to navigate, but your reality of the mental health condition you might be facing is not a lack of your faith. It is not that you are weak. Someone said to me two weeks ago that true Christians cannot become depressed. And this sits at the heart of why this is an issue in the church and why over the next four weeks we're going to break some of those taboos and we're going to speak about it. Amen? I want to I do that today by taking you to a, an intro. I want to introduce a bit around this topic and a bit around my journey in this topic by taking you to a passage that I think is really, really important to help us to begin to fully understand what God does in the midst of some of these incredible challenges that we face. And I want to take you to Paul, one of the great, great leaders of the church, if not the greatest leader, you could argue, of the church, who struggled deeply with mental health issues. I want to show you one of those examples where it becomes too much for him. This is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Is this helping somebody so far? Somebody feeling ministered to already? Okay, we're about to go into the Word. Now it's less me and more Scripture. Amen? All right, good. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these unsurpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest also on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When my anxiety is upon me, I have been in some of my weakest moments. But in my weakest moments, I can stand before you today and declare I was my strongest. Paul mentions something here. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. The word for thorn is the word scallop. It sounds like scallops, but it's scallop with an O. Scallops means a sharp and pointed thing. (laughs) That's all it means, a sharp and pointed thing. And Paul uses this idea in a metaphorical way here. And he goes on to say that this sharp and pointed thing was at work in me. Now, Scholars actually don't know what the thorn is. Paul never defines the thorn. It's one of those annoying things. It's like, Paul, why didn't you just tell us what the thorn was? And and scholars have had fun over centuries trying to decide what the thorn was, right? This is what scholars kind of get up to, right? And they've come up with three ideas. One is that maybe it was a physical impairment like his eyesight, and later on in his life, he definitely struggled with his eyesight. Or, Or maybe it was people or an opposition that was brought against his ministry, and he was struggling to fight off this personal opposition by somebody to his ministry. Or maybe thirdly, it was emotional baggage that he was carrying around with him from the years that he used to persecute Christians, and now he's working and leading a church and in the churches, and maybe he's got this emotional baggage that's driving him. 
We don't know what the thorn was, but it doesn't matter. The thorn is not the point. What's the point is what the thorn did to him. And he describes here, it tormented me. The word for torment there is the Greek word kozospitso. And kozospitso literally means this. It means to be beaten. It means to be smashed. It means to be physically pummeled and hit and hard. This word is only repeated one other time in the whole of the New Testament. And it's found right at the moment where Jesus is being beaten up before he goes on the cross. And I think Paul chooses this word specifically because he's trying to communicate to his church the mental and emotional torment he's going through because of the thorn. He's like, it's like every day I'm getting beaten up. It's like every day I feel like I'm being pummeled and smacked and hit. I feel like what Jesus went through before he went to the cross, how he was beaten bloody by the people who had imprisoned him, that's only the way I can describe the mental and emotional toil and anguish that I was going through. It tormented me in such a way. Like me, when I got home at night and collapsed into bed because I was physically exhausted, Paul's saying to his church, I'm physically exhausted. I'm I'm totally tormented. Mentally and emotionally, this thing is too much for me. And so because of that, he does something. He pleads with the Lord three times for it to be taken away. The word plead there uh, literally means to beg. This is not some sort of, Jesus, if you'd like to, it would be awesome if you could take this away. This is like literally he's begging. He's on his knees. He's crying out because he's tormented by this thing. And he's asking God to come and do something that only God can do. Three times he goes before God. And I want you to know this. Whatever suffering you ever have in your life, your first response should always to plead to the Lord for him to heal you. We believe in healing here at the Vine. We believe in the power of Christ to heal people. And that healing happens sometimes in an instant. I've been in a room in the Philippines where one of our youth prayed for somebody who was blind and I saw him receive sight immediately. It was a New Testament miracle that I cannot explain to you. It was unbelievable. I've seen God step in and do things that you could never, ever expect. I've seen God heal people, redeem people. I've seen demons cast out of people. I've even seen demons cast out of people inside these services on Sundays. I've seen some incredible things, but I've also seen my journey. And I've seen my journey where just like Paul, I can't tell you the number of times I've prayed to be free of anxiety. The number of times I've asked God, would you come begging him? Come on, God, I, I need to pastor this church well. I can't pastor this church well. If I'm overwhelmed with anxiety all the time, if I'm trying to just keep my mind together, how could I even possibly hope to, to speak of Jesus to the people in a room on a Sunday? Lord, you need to take this from me. And Paul's there going, I, I got a church to build. I got stuff to do. I want to bring salvation to the Gentiles and the whole Greek and Roman Empire. God, remove this thing from me. The first thing we do is we ask him and we come to him and we will do that for you. If you're struggling with something in your life right now, if there's a suffering going on, if there's something that's overwhelming you after this service, stay behind. We will pray for you and we will pray that God heals and delivers you. But for Paul, God didn't. And I am so grateful that we have this passage in the Bible. Because for me, God didn't. And maybe for some of you in this room, maybe there's some emotional toil you've been struggling with. Maybe there's a long-term mental health issue that 
you're trying to keep under wraps and you're trying to keep control of. And maybe you prayed many times for it to go and it has not gone. And rather than deliver Paul, God does something here that I think has so much to say and so much help to bring any of us that are struggling with some mental health issue. See, rather than remove the suffering, what God does in this moment is he leads Paul to redefine the suffering. I want to show you something here in the verse 7. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul is so honest with his church. Man, this is an open, broken book before his church. He's like, to keep me from becoming conceited. This is, this is a realization Paul had after God told him that he wasn't going to heal him. In fact, I would argue that God's no to him was the catalyst for him to have a, such a deep revelation of what God needs to do in his life. That prayer we prayed at the start of this, uh, at the end of worship time, Lord, have your way in me. It's like Paul came to God and said, have your way in me. And God said, I'm doing this because you're conceited. <laughs> you really want to know how I feel about you, Paul? You got pride in you. There's something going on deep inside of you that I need to speak to and deal with in your life. And to keep you from continuing to operate out of pride, rather than heal you like you would, I'm going to meet you in it. And we're going to journey together. And we're going to do some things. And you're going to experience my power in your life like you never experienced him before. Because my power is made glorious in your weakness. Would you bring your weakness to me, he says. To Paul. Paul says, to stop me from becoming conceited. He was conceited before he met Jesus. He was conceited because he was a Pharisee above all Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of all Hebrews. He, he was somebody who, by his own uh, word, uh, actually was advanced well beyond his years. He was an A-plus student. He was the kind of guy that every parent in Hong Kong wanted to have. That was Paul. And he got puffed up, and he was proud about it. And then when he became a Christian, when you think that that would set him free from all that, he says, I had surpassingly great revelations to deal with. Now, not only was I an amazing Pharisee above Pharisees, but I'm also the number one Christian that ever was. Now, God's given me unsurpassingly great revelations. And in order to keep me grounded, in order to keep me humble, in order to keep me realizing that it's only ever the power and the grace and the, and the beauty and the love and the work of God, God kept me in a place where I might have been tormented, but he was there. He kept me in a place where although I wanted to be free from it, it was where I needed to be because there was something he was going to show me that I could not experience unless I was in that place. God says this. Jesus says this, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Rather than his healing, God wanted Paul to have his power. And those two things can sometimes be different. Think about that for a minute. Rather than his healing, rather than relieving him from the torment, God wanted him to experience a power that would only be understood if it was encountered in the torment. What God's doing here is he's doing something simply profound for Paul. In the area of his mental health struggles, he's leading Paul not to fight it, not to flee from it, and not to ignore it, but to face it. 
to accept it. Not accept it like, oh, this is fine, this is cool, great, I'm going to be forever anxious or forever tormented, right? Not accept it like, oh, okay, fine, it doesn't matter, no big deal. Accept it in the sense of, this is part of my journey right now. And it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to realize that I have something that's happening in my life that is overwhelming, but I am not alone. I'm not given up on that God is going to meet me in this moment, that God's grace is sufficient. Sometimes the most powerful answer God can give you is not healing. Oh, let me preach on this one for a moment. Sometimes the most powerful answer is not your healing. God's greatest gift to Paul here and God's greatest gift to us is not our healing. It is always his grace. And his grace at times, and it's wonderful, does lead us into moments of incredible healing and we celebrate it. But every single time, what that grace will do is lead you into an encounter of Christ's power, even when the healing is absent. That's his grace. His grace is the most important gift he will ever give you. And sometimes God doesn't give healing because he wants to give something more. He wants you to know his grace and that his grace is sufficient for you. And maybe he'll heal you and maybe he won't, but he will be there for you and he'll lead you into a place where you can accept the reality that sometimes things are out of your control. And when things are out of your control, those are the moments when God can be most powerful. What God's doing here for Paul is he's helping him to understand, and I think it's something important for us. He's helping all of us to understand a journey that's important to go on. And that is to accept the reality that sometimes things are out of our control, and sometimes that's our thinking and our feeling. So often when we encounter mental health issues, when I first counted my anxiety, my reaction was, I need to control this thing. And I need to stop feeling this way. And over many years of therapy, God led me to a place where actually I was able to accept the reality of my anxiety. Not accept it from like, I'm just going to give up. I continue today to stand with it, to fight with it, to pray to God about it. But I continue to understand that it is not the sum total of who I am. I continue to understand that it might be a co-passenger on my bus, but it will not drive my bus. That the only person who ever drives my bus is Christ and his grace is sufficient even if anxiety is on my bus for the rest of my life. His grace is sufficient for me. What Paul was able to do here, can I go another five, ten minutes? Is that all right? Is this okay for everybody? Leaning into this? What, 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 what Paul does here is rather than fight his torment, rather than flee from it, he actually finds himself in a place where he can accept it so that it creates space in him to actually take a different perspective to the torment itself. Where before he was trying to fight that torment, when before his attitude was, I need to get rid of this thing, he then comes to a position where he can change his relationship to his suffering and go from an attack and a kind of get it out of me to a trust in God's grace and a distance from it that will eventually enable it to be released. This is a beautiful thing. And God's like, this journey that I want to lead you on, it's the journey that will truly set you free. Sure, I could heal you in an instant. 
and I could take the pain away immediately. But the next time the anxiety comes, you're going to be in the same place of torment. But if I can lead you to a place where you'll understand that my grace is sufficient for you, if I can lead you in a place where you can open your heart and say, you know what, sometimes this is just a part of who I am. I don't understand it. I don't always like it, but it is who I am in some times of my life. And yet here now is an opportunity to lean in again to the grace of God, lean in again to the power of Christ. And God will never let me down. Never let me down here. Even if I still continue to feel anxious. There's another person in Scripture that felt this way, and I want to take you here as we close. This is from Matthew chapter 26. This person has the name Jesus. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. I want you to see this. Jesus also struggled with mental and emotional anguish. Verse 38. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is how hard this is for Jesus. He literally wants to die. He's so overwhelmed and tormented that he wants to die. He says, stay here, uh, keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible for me, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Oh my goodness. This is like sometimes when I look up from preaching and I find you sleeping. It's not good. It's not good, people. I'm much nicer to you than Jesus is to the disciples. Look what he says here. He says, could you men not keep watch with me? For what? Can you not stay awake for 25 minutes? Okay, it's 40 minutes, but whatever. All right. He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation, for the spirit is willing and the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, then your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Three times God goes before God like Paul and says, would you remove this from me? If there's any other way, if it's not the cross, I'd be super happy. If you can lead me in any other direction, God, and I can do this salvation thing any other way, that's what I want, but not my will. Your will be fun. In other words, may it be to me whatever it is that you want to be to me, but this is hurting. This is anguish. This is difficult. But three times, God doesn't give him any other way. And so at the end of the third time, he submits himself to the will of God. He's arrested. He's beaten. Smashed up. And then, notice this, the greatest pain and humiliation then came. His accusers put a crown of thorns on his head. Oh, thorns. So I wonder when Paul later on talked about thorns, I wonder whether he was trying to get the church to think about this moment. Where, where thorns were placed on Jesus and the thorns cut his head. And if you've ever had a head wound, you'll know that head wounds bleed a lot. So here's the crazy thing. The crown of thorns that Jesus' accusers put on his head to hurt and humiliate him became the very thing that caused the blood to flow on the cross that would bring him glory. Come on, church, that's deep, I know, but take that in. The very thing 
that the enemy had designed the thorn to create the pain actually was the very thing that shed the blood that would be the very thing that would bring glory. See, the thorn brought the blood that would bring the glory. And it will be the same in your life as well. The thorns in our flesh that God gives us grace to walk in will be the very things that will pour the blood of Jesus upon us and show us his glory like never before. It's the thorns that bring the blood, that even when we're weak, he is strong. Can I pray for you? I wonder if you stand with me and I want to pray for you. I wonder whether you just open your hands with me. Father, just so grateful. Just let a moment, let, I sense the Lord wants to do some, some deep ministry for some of you here now. Some of you have been carrying something for so long. And the Holy Spirit is here now. Some of you have been fighting something for so long. Some of you have been ignoring something for so long. Some of you, like me, are afraid to talk to people about it because you think that they will see you weak. Some of you have been really frustrated because you've been praying and praying and praying and God hasn't taken it away. Maybe like Paul, God wants to redefine for some of us our relationship to our suffering because there is something of his glory that we could never see otherwise. Just take a moment now just to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. He loves you so much. Anxiety is still an issue in my life. But I have come to such deep encounters of the grace of God that I never regret getting it. My prayer is that you would come to know a God whose grace is sufficient and what other suffering he might be inviting you to carry. One of my favorite passages from Genesis is when Joseph is standing in front of his brothers who have sold him into slavery. And I want to read this to you whilst your eyes are closed and your hands are open. He says this. He says, you invited, oh sorry, you intended to harm me but God intended it for his good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. My anxiety intended to harm me, but God has intended it for good so that I would come to know him in a way I couldn't otherwise. Father, we come against the enemy's strategies in this area of the church to stop us from talking about it, to make us boil it all down to one simple solution. Father, we come to you as a people of grace, as a people in need of grace, as a people in need of healing. And Lord, I believe that you will heal people in this room, that there'll be some people in this room that will be healed very quickly. And that's a wonderful work of your grace. 
And there'll be people in this room that will be called to carry what it is that they're carrying for many years. And that also is a wonderful work of your grace. Lord, I pray that we would find a God whose grace is sufficient. Take your time just to allow the Spirit to minister to you. Come, Lord Jesus, come.